following is a presentation of Refuge Calvary Chapel, Huntington Beach. For more information about our ministry, please visit refugefamily.com. Lord, we also want to, this morning, turn our attention to your word. Uh, Lord, we've come, we've praised your name, we've come together to hear from you now, Lord. Would you speak to us? Would you shape our lives? Lord, would you mold us and shape us into the people that you've called us to be? And Lord, this is why we come, Lord, to, to spend time with your word and be taught to by your spirit. Lord, would you use us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Pastor Bill also mentioned the idea and the fact that the Harvest Crusade is tonight. Anybody going to that? Anybody go, to, anybody go last night? Oh, good, 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 good. Okay, now here's the thing. I went to the Harvest Crusade. I've been many times, but I went to the first one at the Pacific Amphitheater way, way back in the day, and I walked down and gave my life to the Lord. And here's the thing. I think we could relate on this, even if you didn't go to the Harvest Crusade. When I gave my life to the Lord everything changed. The way that I viewed things, circumstances, people, it just radically changed in my life. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like somebody handed me a list of rules that I now have to obey that I follow Jesus. It was weird. It was like, no, like the things I, I, I used to do, I didn't want to do anymore. Like the, the moment I gave my life to Christ, the spirit came within me and just started opening my eyes to certain things. Did this happen to any of you? Anybody have that happen? Where it was like, what's going on here? Like the Lord is totally at work. And in fact, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this in Colossians. That, that actually Paul, as he's writing this, he's saying, listen, when you come to Jesus, everything is going to change. Your perspective on life, the way you view things, is going to change. And over the last couple of weeks, we got really practical into what that looks like. But notice, remember, where, where Paul started with that. It matters what you believe about Jesus. Here's what I mean. If you believe that he's just a good teacher or a good guy, or that he was just a, a cool guy to hang out with, right? Oh, I'd like to have known Jesus, right? Then it's not, you're not going to give everything to him. Right? You're not going to surrender all to him. You're not going to surrender your life over to someone who is just a good teacher or a good prophet. In fact, Paul says you're going to have to, you have to have a big view of who Jesus is. You have to have a big view of just exactly who Jesus is. And so in Colossians chapter 1, and I'm not going to go through all of the things that we went through over the last couple of weeks, but in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, I want you to view Jesus for who he truly is so you know who you're giving your life over to, who you're surrendering to. And this is what he says in Colossians 1. Actually, verse 15 through 20 is a segment of scripture that I would just encourage you to read, and we did over the last two weeks. But I just picked my three favorite ones out. These are, the, these are the ones that stand out to me. Maybe other ones stand out to you of who Jesus truly is. But this first one gets me, right? Here we are. Look at it. It says, Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. I mean, enough said, right? Like, Jesus is more than just a teacher and a prophet. He is the, the image of the invisible God. Emmanuel, we say at Christmas time, right? God with us. That he comes and dwells with us. Now, to me, that would be someone worth following, right? Worth giving myself over to. Jesus is the son. He's the image of the invisible God. Look what else it says. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things, what? Hold together. 
That's a guy worth following, right? More than just a teacher, a good guy, a guy who taught a bunch of nice things, loved people. Those are all great things. But this is the guy who was before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And look at this third one. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ, in Jesus. So here's why this matters. I'm reticent to give my entire life over to someone who's just a good teacher or a prophet to sacrifice all things for him. But if this is him, if he is the image of the invisible God, if all the fullness of deity dwells in him, if he holds all things together, then let's have a conversation. Then it's, it's maybe worth me giving my life over to. In fact, Paul says, many of you did give your life over to him. And you began to walk out this life for him. There was a moment where you were living in death and you stepped into life. The way he said it was there was this old man that dwelled inside of you. And remember last week we talked about this, this shirt, this old shirt that I have. Some of you I asked, have you, anybody have a shirt that's over 20 years old? And people raised their hand, right? They love that old shirt and it's starting to get holes in it. And, and my wife is like, you should never wear that out. Don't ever wear that shirt out, right? Okay, okay. Um, and there's a moment where with this old shirt, I have to throw it away. I can't keep putting it back on anymore. And that's what Paul says. He says, you took off that old man, that old way of life. And you might say, well, Paul, help me with that. What does that old man look like again? Remind me. He says, this is what it was. That was the time when you had anger and wrath, malice, and then some mouth things. You spoke blasphemy over other people, filthy languages lying to other people. These were indicative of the old man that you took off, that you are no longer. And the reason why you're not any longer that old man, and the reason why you know he's cast off, is because you've actually now put on Christ. And he literally uses the word put on like you would put on a jacket. He says, you have put on Christ, and that you are now a new man and a new woman in Christ. He is with you. He is in you, dwelling with you and in you. You're no longer who you used to be. And then we kind of admitted and we said, actually, sometimes I do wrestle with anger. The old man comes back in again. There, there are times when my mouth is, is filthy, as the text would say. And I, I, the old man comes knocking again. But he listen, here's the key thing. That's not who you are any longer. You've now put on Christ. You're a new creation in him. And while those old things will sometimes come back and knock, you can tell those old things, uh-uh, I have power over you. You're not who I am any longer. In fact, he gave us this list. Here's who you are now. Here's how you interact with each other now. Here are the characteristics of who you are now as you put on Christ. He says tender mercies, kindness, humility, and we talked about that being such a key word as we, we talk about following Jesus. And Jesus just exemplifies humility, sacrifice, loving other people, maybe that were unlovely, people who were broken and lost and hurting. Jesus loved those people. Even though he had a certain position as a, as a rabbi and a teacher, he would say, I'm going to come underneath them and love them because that's, that's who I am. That's humility. That's who you've put on, meekness or gentleness, he says, long-suffering and patience with each other, bearing with one another and forgiving. This is who you have put on. This now represents 
you and me as we've put on Christ. And then he said, listen, you, you're going to be joined together as a family now. We talked about this last week, that the, the dividing walls that once existed be, between you through your identity and who you thought you were, look what he says here in Colossians 3.11. He says, you can all be one together. Here's what it says, whether Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But here's the key. Listen to what it says. But Christ is all in in all. What has he done? He's taken you all together, put Christ on you, and said, now live life together. And we have these pictures of these marbles, right? All different colors and shapes and sizes. And these marbles are all brought together with all different backgrounds. And you're now one together. Not because you're a good fit. Not because you are going to agree on things all the time. But because Christ is all and in all, you have put on Christ and you're moving closer and closer to the image of the one who created you, Jesus Christ. And now he says, I want to get super practical. We've been practical over the last couple of weeks. He says, I want to get even more practical with you this morning. So if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 17, this morning, I want you to take a moment and think about this as you're turning to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Imagine you're in the first century and, and you have never seen a Christian home before, right? It's something that would have been so foreign to you because you grew up maybe in a Greek culture, where there were many gods and many detestable practices uh, amongst those Greek gods. And, and your, your mom and your dad, they were, it, was a different, it wasn't a Christian home. And, and maybe even views of men and women were different back in that first century. That there was some, some mistreatment of women by men in that first century. And that's what you grew up with. And that's what you knew in your home. And maybe even you would say, listen, I, I didn't know anything, uh, anything about this Yahweh God, and I certainly had no idea about Jesus. And all I knew is what I grew up with in my home. And there were things in my home that I didn't really like, actually. But, but, but you wouldn't know any different in that first century. Until one day you go and you hear about this, this Jesus movement that's going around, these little pockets of, of churches that are popping up, these gatherings of people who professed to, to love this Jesus guy. And, and you go to one of these meetings and, and you go in and, and all of a sudden you just, you know, like this is, this is real. <laughs> Whatever this is, this is real. And you end up giving your life over to Jesus that night. And like we started with, when you put your faith in Christ, something happens to you. that You begin to see something completely different. And then you walk back into your home again. You walk through the door and you look at your wife and you can't treat her like maybe you had your father grew up treating your mom. You, you can't treat her the way the culture treats her anymore because you're new in Christ. And if you're a wife, you can't treat your husband the way maybe you were treating him before. You have to view him differently. And if you're a parent, you're going to look at your kids and be like, wow, I'm a different person. They need to know who I am and, and this Jesus that I'm following now. You can imagine the upheaval in your life with your mom and dad, with the way you would talk with them now, because they don't know Jesus. 
And, and here's the funny thing, as I thought about this this week, and I said, well, let's go back to the first century and think about it. Some of you are living this out now in your life, as you gave your life over to Jesus, and you thought, I can't treat my wife the same way anymore. <laughs> I can't treat my husband the same way anymore. The way that we're raising our kids and our family is something completely different than the way that I was raised by my parents, because I love Jesus and who I am in Jesus. And that's Paul's point. He's saying you have now literally put on Jesus and everything you do now is going to look completely different in the way you treat each other and the way you care for each other. Look what he says here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. This is kind of the, the verse that umbrellas over all the verses that we're going to talk about this morning. This is the one you hold on to and you think, okay, he wrote this and everything else is going to fall from this. Colossians 3, 17. Here's what it says. And whatever you do in word or deed, by your mouth or by your actions, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Look what he says. He says, whatever you do. And we talked about this last week. Would Jesus put his signature on your words and your actions in the way that you treat people, in the decisions that you make? Would Jesus sign off on it? And he says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, is it being done in the name of Jesus? And then he says, I want to get super practical. I'm going to come into your house. And he's going to talk to wives. And he's going to talk to husbands. And he's going to talk to kids. And he's going to talk to fathers and parents. And then he's going to go into the workplace. And he's going to talk to workers. And, and he's going to talk to managers. That's where we're going this morning. So take a look at the first person that he talks to. And he says, are you doing everything in the name of Jesus? Look at verse 18. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. In fact, Paul, who wrote Colossians, also wrote Ephesians. Here's what he says in Ephesians. He goes a little bit more expanded on it. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And here's what we would initially think about that. I mean, come on. Are you really going to teach that today? Right? Like, whoa, stand back, everyone. Right? Did he just say that? I can't believe it. we're not coming back here any longer. Right? I think the reason why we all kind of cringe at that moment is because of what we've seen happen with this text. That oftentimes this text is taught for male domination in the name of the Lord. That we've seen it be used as a way to abuse power, either in the home or in the workplace. That, that people actually say, hey, I can do whatever I want. Men say this. I can do whatever I want. Didn't you see the Bible? You have to submit to me. Right? And so we all kind of recoil at the idea of submission, even within the home. And even though we read it here in Scripture, there's this part of us that's like, oh, does it, do we have to talk about this? Right? But I would just tell you, go back to the context. Go back to what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, you have put on Christ in your home. That should make a difference. And so we're not talking about the guy who's going to say, hey, I can do whatever I want in here. I can do whatever I want with you because you have to submit to me. No, what kind of guy are we talking about? This guy. Tender mercies. When you came and put on Christ 
everything changed inside of you, dude, right? That actually now tender mercies are your new way. Kindness, humility in the home. That, that in the context he's talking about, this idea of submitting, the wife is not submitting to an abusive man or a power-hungry man. The wife is submitting to someone who says, listen, your needs are greater than my own. How can I serve you? Meekness or gentleness, long-suffering and patient, forgiving even. So naturally, when we think about the idea of submission and we've seen the way it's been abused in the church, in men of God, then of course the culture and even ourselves are recoil at this idea of, whoa, that seems heavy-handed. So then the question is, well, does God, because he gives the, the man headship in the home, does he favor man over woman? Is man more important then? Is is man more valued then? Because he gets to he has to have the wife submit to him, so he must be more valuable. And, and I would argue against that completely. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Here's what it says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and here's our, here's our word that we've been stressing, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That dividing line is done for. There's neither slave nor free. Wow, that's powerful. You mean both are seen in Christ as one? Wow, that's powerful. Slave or free? There is neither male nor female. Here's why. For you are all one in Christ. So it's not a value issue. It's not one more important than the other. It's not favoritism towards a gender, right? That's not what Paul is writing here. In fact, it would be so repulsive to Paul to find out that men were using their power to get sway over women or there was abuse at all. That would, for Paul, that would have been so uh, uh, mind-blowing. What? And I think if it was repulsive for Paul, think about what it would have been for Jesus who walked around and loved people, even people who were viewed in that culture as lower than him. He still loved them, got down on their level. This is the kind of person we're talking about that you're submitting Two, I think I would say that this is structure and order that, that God's talking about within the home. That, that God, when he says headship in the home, it's actually structure and order within the home, not value or who's more important. In fact, we see this in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three equally God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we call that the Trinity. Each three of them, is are fully God, and yet have different persons. We see Father, we see Son, and we see Holy Spirit. And there's a moment where Jesus is on the face of the earth, and he says this. What does he say? Not my will, but whose? Thy will, your will, Father, be done. There's this submission of the Son to the Father, not because one is more God than the other, or more valuable, but because in the, the roles played out in the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father. Your will be done. In fact, we see that throughout Jesus' life. I go where you call me to go. I do what you call me to do. And in this particular case, this is the same idea. Not one more valuable than the other, but, but headship in the home. So naturally, I'm studying for this, and I have to ask my wife, like, what do you think about this? You know, And we've talked about it. We've been married for 18 years. And here's the thing. 
I asked her, I said, have I ever said to you these words? You must submit to me. <laughs> I asked her that because I wanted to, I, I thought like, I've never, I don't think I've ever said that, but I wanted to fact check. And she said, no, Jeff, you've never said that. So I've never said in my entire life uh, to, my, to my wife uh, that you must submit to me. And, and I thought about it. I said, I wonder why. <laughs> like, why did I, I've never, I've never felt that before. I've never felt like we're, this, you need to submit to me. And, and by the way, we argue just like everyone else. We go back and forth, and, and oftentimes she wins, right? I, I don't tell her you must submit to me when I think she's going to win, right? It's like, so I wondered, I thought, well, what's going on? Like, why is it that I never have felt that idea? And I asked her, I said, what do you think that is? And she, here's what she said, and I thought it was so, so great. She says, it's honor. It's honor. I honor you in our home. And I thought, that's, that's huge. Because it's not winning an argument. It's not winning this important decision that we have to have. Because I can go ahead and lose some of those, right? I don't have to win all those arguments and say, you submit to me. Because I have a wife who honors me in the home. And I thought, that is it. That's it. That's the idea that I feel like. I've never had to use those words because I just feel like Bethany, my wife, honors me in the home. What does that look like? What does honor look like? That means that I have a fan in our home, that, that she actually roots for me. She's never against me. That even when I win an argument or she wins an argument, we're not against each other, that actually she supports me. That even when I'm not honorable, because sometimes that old man comes back, right? Anger, mouth, whatever it is, comes back. That even when I'm not honorable, she still honors me. She believes in me. There's the other thing she does. She'll, there are times when she'll, like she's been with the kids all day long, right? And she's working. She's driving all over the place. And I'll get home from work and she'll, she'll just say, thanks for, for, thanks for going to work for our family. What? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you literally worked all day long with the family, driving kids around, doing other things around the home. You worked all day. But the honor that she gives me when I walk through the door and she says, you know, thanks for going to work for us and providing for us. Like that's, that's honor. And, and she, is she do it as well? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I just think I need it more. <laughs> I just think I need that, that more. She gives that to me. And so when I thought about it, I've never had to say, you must submit to me. It just seems so forward. It, it would not come out of my mouth. But I think it's because in, in some ways, in, in most every way, she said, well, I'm just going to honor you in the home and the position that the Lord gives you. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I'm just not that type of person. Like, I'm not really a submissive type of person. I don't really do those sorts of things. And I'd say, that's fine. That's fine. It's, it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder. But I would just tell you, you're not submitting primarily in this particular case, to your husband, there's actually a bigger submission that's going on. In fact, look what it says here in our text. It says right there, as is fitting to who? To the Lord. That, that actually my submission isn't first and foremost to my husband. It's actually my submission is, is first and foremost to the Lord. Bethany's only uh, able to honor me when I'm not honorable because her first submission is, is to the Lord. It, it's saying, Lord, I love you. And the way that you've called me to serve in this home as a woman who's put on Christ to honor my husband, that's the calling of my life. And there are times when I don't even agree with him, right? Or he said that thing to me and I don't, I don't want to do that. 
right? But she's honored me even through all those seasons of life. That is what he's calling to, as is fitting unto the Lord. Now, it's bears saying, important to say, I think, is that when this gets out of line, when a husband is abusive with words or physicality to a wife, that is not the time to submit. That's the time to get out and get help, right? And regardless if there's restoration or not, I'm not sitting underneath abuse. Paul's not writing this saying, I want women to sit under abusive relationships. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, get out of that. Get, leave that. Run, 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 and, and, and get help. The other side of it, I would say, is if the husband at all asks the wife to do something that is sinful or beyond what God has called us to, that would be another person that's like, I'm not submitting to that. Why? Because my submission is first to the Lord. The only reason, listen, buddy, the only reason I'm submitting to you is because I submit first and foremost to the Lord. And if you ask me to defy my God, then then I'm out on that. I'm not heading that direction. Right? I'm not submitting to you in a, in a, against my God. Now, I'm sure there's other ways that you maybe have thought that, hey, I, I don't have to submit if, but just pray about that one. <laughs> Here's, we don't go any further with that. Look at this. So then what do the husbands have to do? All right, wives, wives submit. Okay, what do the husbands do? Look at verse 19. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Some of you think about this and you think, what? The husband just has to love his wife? I mean, really? That's all, <laughs> right? The, the wife has to submit and the husband has to love? You're like, I do that all the time anyways. I'm loving, right? And the husband gets off easy, or so you would think. L- look at Ephesians chapter 5. Again, Paul penned this. He wrote Colossians. He wrote Ephesians. Here's what he writes. He says, husbands, love your wives. Yeah, we got that. Just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. That actually that love isn't the warm, fuzzy feeling like when we were first dating love, right? That's not the love that he's talking about. He's talking about self-sacrificial love. The call of the husband is to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And in fact, as he says here, gave himself for her. He goes on that he, that's Christ might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In fact, what he's doing here in this moment, Jesus is doing is doing something the church couldn't do for herself. Right? He's sacrificing himself so that he can present her as holy and righteous and blameless, which she could not do on her own. She needed him to die, to completely sacrifice himself so she could be redeemed and set free. And Jesus says, husbands, I want you to love your wives like that, like Christ loved the church. Look what else he says. So husbands, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And he makes this totally logical conclusion. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But look at what we do. We nourish and cherish it. Just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. He says, listen, husbands, I want you to nourish 
and cherish your wives. I want you to treat them, when you think about yourself all the time and making sure you take care of yourself, I want you to treat them like they're connected onto you, like you are one with them. And in the same way you make sure your rights and opinions get heard, I want you to make sure their rights and opinions get heard. I want you to treat them like they are you. That's important. Look what else he says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and be joined his, and join his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, listen, the, the state of California will recognize your marriage, right? But listen, something else is happening more than just that legal document that's getting signed. You're actually becoming one flesh with each other. I always remind couples whenever I do weddings, when they get to the ring part, I always say, you know, the ring is, a, is an awesome reminder of that every decision you make today has a profound effect on someone else, your wife or your husband. That in fact, this is a reminder that says, I am one with someone else. And every decision I make, positive or negative, will affect the other person. That's how one you are, husbands, with your wife. This is a great mystery, he goes on to say, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see the kind of culture that's being built here, that there is a husband who loves his wife at all costs. That, that lays down his own rights, his own will, his own desires in order to love his Wife, You know, later on in Philippians, here's what Paul writes to the church. He says, listen, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you, listen to this, if we would apply this in our marriages, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, that's a hard one, but I'm going to win this argument, right? I'm right. She's wrong. But look what it says. Let each of you look not only to, uh, for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says, he, he just says this, which is like, oh, okay, Lord. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind was in Christ Jesus? What did Jesus do? Look what it says. Who being in the form of God, that's pretty high up there. <laughs> that's a high rank. Deity, God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Okay, Jesus, the Father, they're one, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men from heaven to earth. Jesus says, listen, you're worth it. I love you, my church. I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to go from heaven to earth. And look what he says. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Now, husbands, love your wives like that. Love your wives the way Jesus loves his church. That's the call. That means that when I come home and I am addressing my wife, these things should be on the table. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, gentleness long-suffering and patience, bearing with and forgiving 
one another. These are the things that make up that godly home that Paul's talking about. So when he says to the wife, submit, she's submitting to the husband who loves her at all costs, who doesn't withhold anything back from her, who honors her as his wife, as his equal, as his one, right? This is the, this is the, the guy that is the head of the home. Now, I would say this, I realize that not everyone here is married, so you can just erase the last 15 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. And I know not everyone desires to be married, and that's okay, but here's the thing, I want you to hear this. If you are single and you are looking to be married, if you're looking to be married, please capture those last 15 minutes and say, this is who I'm looking for. I'm looking for a man who will be these things, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience. I'm looking for a man who will be forgiving. I want this to be the tenor. And the only men who I know who are like this have put on Jesus. That's the first and foremost thing. I'm looking for a man who's put in Jesus. And even at that, it's going to be difficult, right? Can I get an amen, men? That these things can be really hard. But listen, I think what Paul has been saying leading up to this moment is that he, you are being more and more created into the image of Christ. The more you follow after him, the more these attributes of what he's looking for to be the lead of a home are going to come out of you. And God is going to refine you and he's going to change you. And there are going to be moments where you have to apologize. And you have to say, I, I wasn't the man today that you thought you were marrying. I, I'm not the man today that, that, I, that what I said was inappropriate. I apologize. Would you forgive me? You're going to have to say those things out loud to your wives. That's the kind of home that I think Paul is writing to and saying, listen, and wives, here's what I want you to do. I want you to honor and submit your husbands. I want you to give them a chance at this, giving them a run at this, to be successful in the home of leading the family. And they need cheerleaders on the side. They need fans moving them along to say, you can do it. You, can do it. you didn't do it there. Right? You didn't do it there, but you can do it, right? And I'm going to honor this position that God has, has given you in the home. And look what it says in, in 19 there. It says, do not, husbands, do not be bitter towards them. Husbands, you give your wives the chance that when they don't, maybe they are bitter at you for something you said and did, but you don't, you don't give up on them. Right? You just continue to walk out this life with them. And then we move to kids. So we've talked about wives, and we talked about husbands, and now he says in verse 20, children, I've got something for you. Look what he says. Children, obey your parents in all things. And by the way, that's just written big on our kids' walls all over the place. Just wake up, they open up their eyes, and it just says, obey your parents in all things. It, we don't really, but that's that's the idea. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. That, that comes right out of the, the Ten Commandments, Exodus uh, 20, 12. Look what it says. Honor your father and mother that it may, your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It comes all the way from the Ten Commandments. So here's the interesting thing to me. It's a one-liner. <laughs> it's like, kids, obey your parents. And, like, what else? And I thought about it for a second. It doesn't say, like, kids brush your teeth. Kids don't say these words. Kids do good in school. It's not a laundry list of things that the kids have to do. I thought that would have been great, Lord, if you would have put that in there. But it's not. It's just kids obey your parents. And I got to thinking about that. And I thought, well, that's important. Because here's the thing. 
It's, it's our job then as parents to lay out those rules and regulations based on scripture. That actually, the Lord says, Jeff, they're yours. Here you go, right? Teach them, instruct them, guide them in your home. That, that actually, you and I as parents are responsible for our kids learning about obedience and authority within the home. Now, I'm so thankful my mom was a single mom. She, she taught me all of those things as best she could. Uh, as, a, as a young man growing up, she instructed me on all of those things. I, I'm so thankful for my wife now, Bethany, who helps me in this, that we're doing it, we're doing it together, and that we set out these rules and regulations and our expectations for our kids and they're to follow them. They're to obey us according to Scripture. And mind you, I've told them that many a times, right? I'm reminding them that all the time. Obey God. Now, here's the thing. We have to hold to that. It's important that when we set out that guideline and they cross over that guideline, that there's discipline there. Why? Because they're learning obedience and they're learning about authority, now, I think that's so important for today because they're going to grow up someday and they're going to have a boss. Or we're going to have lots of bosses, right? And they're going to have to submit to that authority that's been governing over them. And if I didn't teach them that that was important, if they didn't ever have consequences to stepping over the bounds of that authority, then they'll never learn it. And he's saying, I think what he's saying here is, children, obey your parents. And God is giving that authority then to you parents and maybe some of you grandparents, to help to instruct and guide and direct so that those kids will learn authority. I think that's important for all of us to understand. We are in training grounds with our kids, and we're teaching and instructing. Then he says something to fathers. Look what he says here in 21. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He says it like this in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And I will just go back to this. Fathers are important. You fathers, you're important. Why? Mothers not important? No, mothers are, are super important. Lord, thank you for good mothers. But fathers, you are the head of the home. And sometimes we get disengaged as fathers from the parenting. We think, oh, that's the mom thing. But according to this, he's talking to fathers. He's actually saying, fathers, you're important in the home. And here's how important you are. You could go to the point of discouraging your kids. That, that actually your words and your actions towards your kids matter. So much so that there's a warning that says, be careful, fathers, that you don't discourage or dishearten your kids, that they would just throw up their hands and think, I'll never be able to please you, right? Listen, I'll just, let's just be honest for a second here. There's moments I struggle with that. There's moments where my, uh, my kids, that the words that I say or the tone that I say in them can be discouraging to the point of, quite frankly, we're just being honest because we're just a couple of us here, right? That I've had to go and apologize for, for the way that I said something or how I said something. And that would, if, if, and quite frankly, my wife is the one that helps in that. She's like, you know what you said. I was like, oh, I didn't really mean it that way or I didn't say it that way. Oh, yes, yes, you did say it that way. Okay, so what I do, in fact, this happened last week. I just go into my, my son's room and I hug him and I say, I love you. And I did not mean it to, to be that way. I, I'm totally sorry. You know that I love you. 
You know that I don't, I don't want to discourage you. And, and so this text is actually speaking to that role of father in the home. He's going to love his wife sacrificially. He's going to love his kids. He's not going to discourage them. He's going to, and in fact, he's going to encourage them. And, and can I just encourage you dads that, that actually obedience and authority and discipline is so important in the home. And, and it's good that you have that charge and we have that charge as dads. But you got to mix in love. You got to mix in, hey, I love you. Those words are powerful for a kid, probably of all ages, I assume, younger, all the way to older. Hey, I love you. Hey, I need to, I want to hug you, right? That idea of love is so important. Can I tell you another one that's so important? And this is all my wife's doing. So everything good that comes out of today's message is all Bethany. So you could just be like, okay, all the bad stuff is me. Listen, fun is also part of being a good parent or dad. And, and I'll tell you why that's important in a second, but there's times when we take our kids out for dates and, and specifically Bethany puts them on the calendar and she reminds me, she says, hey, this Friday we're taking Jack out to wherever or taking Taylor out to wherever or Abby, wherever. We're taking them out. Here's why, because there are three kids and each one of them needs to know that, that they're loved and that they're special, right? And here's why that's important as it pertains to authority and obedience is because they're going to have to be disciplined at some point, right? They are going to cross over the line. And when they cross over the line, we want to have a home where love and fun happens so that we can also say, hey, you know that I love you. This is not out of hatred or, or that I don't love you. In fact, you can't argue that I don't love you because we just went to the movies together, right? But I have to discipline you. And, and there's this grace and mercy that goes along with authority and discipline. And so I would encourage you dads to, to let that reign in your home. Yes, absolutely. Authority. Yes, absolutely. Discipline and obedience. You're, you're responsible for that in your kids. But also, also, don't let them get discouraged. Don't let them walk away and throw up their hands and think it's impossible with you. I can't do it, Right? We probably all felt like that before. I can't do this anymore with you, right? No, no, I want to encourage you with love and support. So that's for the, the kids and the fathers. So now we've gotten wives, we've gotten husbands, we've gotten kids, we've gotten dads and parents. Now you can see how practical this is. People who've put on Jesus and they're seeing life differently. How are we supposed to do this? Okay, here we go. Look at the next one, verse 22. Paul addresses masters and servants. Verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Now, slavery in that first century is widespread. In fact, some say that you could walk down a major Roman street and half the people that you bumped into were slaves, either owing a debt or owned by someone it was a huge part of the culture. Someone else I read that said that there were about 60 million slaves in that day. It was rampant. It was all over the place. Then the question oftentimes comes up is, well, Paul, why aren't you writing against slavery? Like, why would you take the time just to pin writing out against slavery? And I'll give you three reasons why I think he doesn't do that. I think the first reason is we think of it like, oh, the American church today, we have power. We can stand up and go against the government. And, and to some level, it's true. There is power within the church. And maybe not just the American church, but the, the global church. There's a massive amount of Christian people that if they rise up, they could do some 
powerful good, right? But in this day, we're talking about little churches popping up all over the place. That, that actually, in the face of Rome, Paul's not going to be able to pen anything that's going to stop slavery in that day. There's just no way he's going to do that. This small kind of up-and-coming church. I think that's number one. Number two, I don't think he ever set out for that. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose is solely to share the gospel. <laughs> it's literally to say, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. Your life is going to change. And then he would help churches along the way. His whole focus was gospel-centered. And the third reason I would say that, and this is probably true, and, is, and we could see it, the fruits of it today, is that when Paul writes about the change that's going to happen inside of you, when you come to know Jesus, there is this understanding that you're going to view people differently. Remember, we read the list, tender mercies, gentleness, humility. This is the new when you put on Christ. And in fact, the way you view people, even if it's different than the way culture views people, you're going to love people because they were created in the image of God. And that will begin to be instilled inside of you. And you will probably, and in fact, there's a point where he actually writes, he says, if you're a slave and you can gain your freedom, do it. But his focus, his objective was share gospel teach the gospel, preach the gospel, write about the gospel, change lives. And I believe in the course of that time, what you see is a change in the way people viewed people, regardless of whatever economic status you're in. In fact, we saw it already. The barriers are broken down, right? Between slave and free, men and women, Jew and non-Jew. Those barriers are broken down. It says, because Christ is all and in all. And so you see this radical change, I believe, of the view of a Christian man or woman back in that day. Now, I want to share one quick story with you. I talked to Pastor Allen this last week, and I think it typifies the view of who we are in Christ. And Pastor Allen and Billy are in Tennessee, um, and their church is supporting, by the way, uh, that there are slaves today. I don't know if you know that. Um, around between 30 and 40 million, somewhere in that number, I've seen different numbers. People today, as we sit here this morning, whose lives are, are living in slavery. And, and Pastor Allen and, and Billy, his wife, they're part of a church that is about freeing people from lives of slavery. In fact, they work with a ministry, now catch this, who is in Asia, and what they do is they raise money and then they buy people out of slavery. Now, these people are in slavery because they owed a debt to someone. And the way they work off that debt is they work with bricks in a kiln. And they do that year after year, year after year. And here's the thing. They never pay off the debt. It just keeps going on and on. And when they're about to, there's a, another fine or tax levied on them. So they stay in slavery their entire life. Then what happens is if the parents pass away, that debt's passed down to the kids. So it's perpetual slavery over and over and over again. And what's so cool about what Billy and Allen's church is doing is that they pay for that person to be freed from slavery, to be educated, and then give them a way to provide for their families. Guess how much it costs? How much would you think a life is worth, right? $327. $327 frees these people from slavery. On the website that I read that's from Billy and Allen's church, 
It says, for the cost of Disney World, right? You can free someone from slavery and set them on the right path. Now, that's the heart of Christ, is it not? That it's redemption and saving and in this broken world where some people view other people less than, so much so that they would subject them and their families to lives of slavery, then we would say, hey, that's not my Jesus, right? That's not my gospel, and then to get actively involved in it. In fact, we have a human trafficking um, uh, ministry here at Refuge because someone said, listen, not my Jesus. I, I don't want that to continue to go on. What can we do? And they stepped out into that ministry. And so I want to encourage you with that. Now, here's the thing. He goes on with their text and actually he's speaking to servants and he's going to be talking to those who oversee those servants. And, and I don't know if that any of us could relate to that. <laughs> I don't know that we have a one-for-one one in our culture for slavery according to what we understand. And so what I think we can do, and again, I know it's not one-for-one, one, but I can't think we can look at what Paul says to them, and we can internalize that by saying, well, I go to work every day. Maybe I can take some things that he's teaching and saying, and I can apply them to my lives and my work and the workforce. So look at verse 22 with me. When I go to work... <laughs> that I don't work for this purpose with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, that actually when I go to work, I'm not trying to do things that are great in order to please men right there in verse 22 or women, my managers or upper management or the people I work with. I'm not trying to please them, but actually I'm working with sincerity of heart in fear of God. Like I'm honoring God with my work. And you might say, well, Jeff, you don't even know what I do. It doesn't even matter. If you're making widgets, it doesn't matter. He's saying, listen, when you go to work tomorrow, go with the mindset of honoring the Lord, of honoring him. Look at verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. In your work, in the place that you work, you're a servant of the Lord Christ. Look at verse 25. But he who does wrong will repay for what he has done, and there is no partiality. What's he saying here? He's saying that actually you thought you were going to work for your paycheck tomorrow, right? That's why you work. So you can set your life up so that you can earn a paycheck, which is, by the way, is a good thing. Uh, provide for your family, another good thing. And actually save maybe a little something so that I have something to retire with, right? That's why you thought you were going to work. But actually what he's saying is that you're going to work for the Lord to serve him in whatever you do. And in fact, there's another reward that comes along with the paycheck. According to scripture, it says that you will receive the reward of the inheritance from the Lord, whatever that might be. That actually I go to work with the mindset of honoring Christ and I will get a paycheck as I should. And I should be grateful for that because the Lord's provided that. But also there's another reward. But look what else he said in the negative. He said, but look at what it says. But he who does wrong in the workplace or in the home will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. In other words, whether you're the highest person on the totem pole of your work or you're the first day, just got there, lowest on the totem pole. He's like, be careful. There's no partiality that God sees what you do at work, whether you're skimming off the top with finances, whether you're skimming off the top with, with laziness or whatever that might be at your work. God knows that. 
And he says there, there's actually a punishment for that. There's no partiality, whether you're the, the top or the bottom. He says you will be repaid. And so that then should make us the best employees, right? That, that maybe the boss thinks they, you work for them, but you're like, actually, my boss is a little higher than you, right? That actually, when I come to work today, I'm going to honor you because you're my authority. But actually, I'm working with a higher authority, with the Lord. And God, would you use me in the workplace? Now, I know this is going to scare you. We're, we're almost done. But we have to pick up verse 1 in chapter 4 because I think it fits with 3. So we're not going all the way through 4. We're just stopping in verse 1. But we have to talk about this. It's part of the same context, I believe. So look what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I would just say this, managers, people in authority, are you just with those that work for you? Are you fair to those who work for you? Do you value those people that work for you? It's important. Again, his reminder here is this. Your, your seniors, the people above you may not see you and how you treat the employees, but, but it says you have a master in heaven that God actually cares about our workplace environment. God cares about it. How we treat people at work. And I would say, especially if you're in a place and a position of authority, he cares. You represent him in the workplace. Should change the way we work. Listen, here's where we're close. Jesus says, you've put me on. You've put off the old man, the old ways of working, the old home life things. But now you've put on Christ and that affects every part of your life. That affects the wife and the husband and the kids and the parenting and the work. He touches every aspect of life. It affects it all, is his point. Let me ask you this. Today, when you go home after lunch, you go home, you walk through the doors, and, and, and there's Jesus right there. And, and you know it's Jesus because he's got the long white robe and the, the long hair. And you kind of felt like when you're walking up to the door, like, I feel like some Jesus is here, right? So you walk in because you're holy, right? So you, you, you walk in and, and there's Jesus. And, and you're like, oh, Jesus, what, what are you doing here? You're like, I, I, I was at church today, right? I can't wait to church. Um, and he's like, no, no, j- relax, relax, relax. Here's the thing. I'm going to spend some time with you, okay? I'll, I'll sleep on the couch, like, you know. But you're like, oh, no, Jesus, you can sleep in the bedroom. We'll sleep on the couch on the floor. You're Jesus, right? And you're like, no, no, I just want to spend some time and see what your home life is like and how you treat the people in your home. Oh, okay. Think about that for a second. What would that be like for you? What, at the end of that week, if he stayed for a week and he was going to give you some pointers and some tips, what kind of things would he tell you as he spent the day or the, the week with you? Imagine this, the next morning, he, he got up and he had his lunch pail ready, right? Salmon probably is in there, fish of some sort, maybe loaves of bread, I don't know. But he, he comes with you and he gets in the car with you. He says, I'm going to work with you. I want to see how you treat the people at your work and, and what they feel about you and how they view you. And immediately, obviously, you go to K-Wave, right on the stereo, you're like... I listen to the Bible all the time, Jesus. K-Wave for me, only K-Wave. Especially at 4.30, I listen to K-Wave at 4.30 when Refuge Radio is on plug. And then he's like, I just want to kind of see what you do at work and and how the people respond to you at work. I'm just going to come watch you for a while. Imagine if Jesus did that. 
And I think that's what Paul said. His, he said, he is. He is with you. He is watching with you. And I don't think he's saying out of condemnation, like I'm coming to get you, Jeff. I'm coming to get you at work and in your home. And boy, you better. No, I think what he's doing all along in these last couple of weeks, he's like, Jeff, actually, I want to give you pointers. <laughs> I, I want to soften your heart. I, I want you to see what I see. Because ultimately what he's trying to do is he's trying to make you the man of God that he called you to be. He's trying to make you the, the woman of God that he's called you to be in the home and in the workplace. And he's not a heavy-handed guy. He's not after you. He's just saying, listen, I want you to look more like me all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm shaping you, Jeff, into, into my image so that you can be that light in your home that I've called you to be. And you're that light in the workplace that I've called you to be. And the more you look like me, the more I refine you and work with you, the more humble you are, the more, sh more I can shape you, the more you're going to represent me and the people around that need to know me. And here's the thing that's so cool about refuge. We're filled with these people, right? That have put on Christ and are saying, listen, I'm not there yet. I am by no means perfect. I still wrestle with some of these old ways of life. But here's the reality. I've put on Christ and I'm heading into the direction that he wants me to go. And there are times when I, I need to say I'm sorry and there's times I repent, but I'm moving forward in the name of Jesus. And we've all collected together to say, Lord, use us. Collectively, individually, God, would you use us? Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. So, so, so beyond what we deserve. And Lord, I believe this morning there's someone listening to this message, maybe all of us, who have said, listen, I have not arrived. I'm not that husband that I've been called to be. I'm not that wife that I've been called to be. I struggle maybe as an adult child to obey my parents or to listen to them or to have a healthy relationship. Maybe we're saying, as we look at the idea of parents, Lord, man, I said that thing to my kids and, and I don't know, Lord, I'm just not the parent I'm supposed to be. I'm not the employee. Lord, maybe somebody's feeling like, man, I've wasted so much of the company's time and money and, and I'm not the employee that maybe you've called me to be. But Lord, I believe that's why they're here this morning, being shaped and molded by you by the work of the Spirit and the Word, your Word, Lord, hiding in our hearts. That you would move us to a position of being used by you as lights in this world. And so, Lord, mold us, shape us, at times break us. Lord, Lord I pray for our family's sake, if there's anything, uh, long-term sin in our lives, that you would break us, bring us to a place of confession of turning our lives fully over to you. Lord, I pray over our congregation this weekend. Lord, may we have taken a step closer to the people that you've called us to be so we can shine bright for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Refuge Calvary Chapel Huntington Beach. For more information about our ministry, please visit refugefamily.com or call 714-891-9495. Set free.